0: This is Age of Treason Radio, with your host, Tan Stoffel. Dilemmas, false and true. One of the nice things about Twitter is the immediacy of it, and the ability for people To find each other and then bounce ideas off of each other very easily. But one of the downsides is that many things that are valuable get lost in the fire hose of of information that's on Twitter. And ultimately, especially in the kind of ideas that racialists play with, it's very likely that your account will eventually be deleted by Twitter and all the little nuggets of wisdom will just disappear forever from the record. So I wanted to this time talk a little bit about some ideas that uh, Alex Linder in exchange with uh, between myself and Alex Linder uh, that happened on Twitter I wanted to expand on them a bit and make a more permanent note of them because I think they are important. It started with uh, Linder twitting whites won't even divide up verbally but persist in using language Of the conqueror quote anti-semitism unquote and quote racism unquote equals hashtag anti-white clown concepts I thought that was a as usual for Twitter Twitter forces you to boil ideas down to the bare minimum I thought that that was a an excellent expression of a key idea the importance of terminology the importance of language, the importance of recognizing language that's coming from an enemy that reflects an enemy mindset, and unfortunately, the reality that many of the people who should be on our side, who maybe even think of themselves as pro-white, as racialists, accept the terms that are defined by the enemy and lend them credence by doing so. I responded to Linder by saying likewise for xeno homo islamophobia in quotes the jew psych warfare packed right into the word i've pointed out before that that phobia is a marker it's a uh, typically jewish tactic to claim that their enemies are psychopathic that there is something that there is some mental illness in their enemies. That in in the case of phobia, that there is an irrational fear. All fear is to a certain extent irrational. It's more emotional than it is logical process. But the uh, the nub of it is that they're implying that it's wrong. That the fear is wrong. That it's psychopathological. That it's a baseless fear. That there really is nothing to fear. That it's a paranoia a fear of something that shouldn't be feared. And uh, Sigmund Freud is the most famous and or infamous popularizer of these ideas, the one who first codified them and uh, put them into writing a lot of them. But his work and and the school of thought based on it was really pseudoscience. An outgrowth of that work was the Frankfurt School in the early part of the 20th century before the rise of National Socialism, or just about at the same time, the Frankfurt School was the source of what's called today by a lot of people cultural Marxism. It was the intellectual movement that transmutated or just mutated the previous class-based Marxism into new classes, and specifically race. And the seminal work of the Frankfurt School, the most well-known and the one that really represents what they were all about is the authoritarian personality and there's a quote from Wikipedia I think that uh, talking about criticism of the authoritarian personality that puts it very well I've read before and I'll read it again here some aver- observers have criticized what they saw as a strongly politicized agenda to the authoritarian personality social critic Christopher Lash argued that by equating mental health with left-wing politics and associating right-wing politics with an invented, quote, an authoritarian, unquote, pathology, the book's goal was to eliminate antisemitism by, quote, subjecting the American people to what amounted to collective psychotherapy by treating them as inmates in an insane asylum, unquote. Similarly, Slovenian philosopher uh, Slavov uh, Zizek wrote, quote, It is precisely the kind of group loyalty, respect for tradition, and consciousness of differences central to Jewish identity, however, that Horkheimer and Adorno described as mental illness in Gentiles. These writers adopted what eventually became a favorite Soviet tactic against dissidents. Anyone whose political views differed from theirs was insane. Of course, this is uh, thats the end of the uh, Wikipedia, but this... Favorite Soviet tactic isn't really a Soviet tactic, it's a favorite Jewish tactic. I'm sure if anyone uh, looked for evidence of it prior to the Frankfurt School and prior to Sigmund Freud, that it could be found, because it seems to be something that comes up in Jews over and over and over again, that their their enemies, anyone that they identify as a threat or even a potential threat, is dealt with in, in this way by painting them as insane. After the Authoritarian Personality is another similar work by Richard Hofstetter, who did something similar in 1964 when he wrote The Paranoid Style in American Politics, another seminal work of psychopathologization of whites, specifically, and in terms that um, pathologizing them for for even thinking in ways that, uh, that Jews just exhibit all the time, and that it would be easy to flip it around and apply the same criticism to Jews. It would be easier, in fact. So Linder responded again to to me. He said, um, the Jews' verbal strategy is forced false dilemma, which is a logical fallacy. Works only if you control mass media. Again, another valuable insight. I thought the same myself, that I see the occurrence of false dilemma, which is a general logical fallacy, I see it used often by Jews. It's one of the main tools that they use in argument. Now, a dilemma is really any problem with two potential solutions. And it's more than just a fork in the road, It's there's a negative connotation to it. It's a problem, and the there's two potential solutions that make a dilemma, although... More recently, the meaning of the word has just become any problem with any number of negative uh, or not not palatable solutions. But originally, it meant really just two. And you see it in expressions like caught between a rock and a hard place or stuck on the horns of a dilemma. It's negative. The whole situation is, is seen as negative. And we also see it in the phrase choosing between the lesser of two evils which should be familiar to anyone who's voted in the last several decades worth of selection election process in the U.S. A false dilemma, the logical fallacy that Linder refers to, also is fairly common and well known, and you see it in expressions such as my way or the highway. Another one that I often think of is noose or loose. There was a, a case in Massachusetts several years ago where a nanny killed a baby that she was responsible for and when she was on trial the judge presented the jury with only those two choices, noose or loose. Either, either you set the, either you give the defendant the death penalty or set them loose and it, it was clear that the judge was hoping by presenting the jury with that false dilemma, that false choice between only one of two things, that they would choose the thing that he wanted, which was loose. And he demonstrated that by overriding their guilty verdict, which would have been the noose. And he overrode it and nullified the jury's decision and let the nanny go. I see it also, I've seen it in the um, arguments about the suicide meme. The standard technique is to argue it's suicide because the idea is that the Jews are 0% responsible. It's 100% the responsibility of whites, what's happening. That's true not just for if you think that something bad is happening to whites, but even if you think that society as a whole, that uh, it's white supremacy that reigns in the U.S. is the uh, mainstream Jews media understanding of things. And so whites get 100% of the blame of anything that goes wrong. Something goes wrong in Detroit. Something goes wrong in Baltimore or Ferguson. It's 100% to blame on whites. So this dichotomy between 0% or 100%, 0% responsibility of the Jews, 100% responsibility for whites, is very common both in the mainstream and the Jewish mainstream and also on in the fringes where the problems of this situation are discussed. And you can see when people are suggesting that this is just suicide, whites are blaming themselves 100% and uh, If someone like me steps into it and says, no, you're just trying to excuse the Jews, well, then they flip it and say, well, you're just trying to blame the Jews 100% and and blame whites 0%. You're taking, you know, whereas they're arguing that the Jews have zero agency and whites have all the agency, they when you challenge them on that, then they flip it in their mind because they, they see only or they want to see only these two potential ways of seeing it. These two mirror images, like I talked about in the last podcast, is the image that can be seen in one of two ways, and your mind can flip back and forth if you look at it objectively. These people arguing the suicide meme will will argue that uh, you must be, if you challenge them, you must be arguing that whites have no agency, and that the Jews are fully in control, that they're the puppeteers that are controlling everything, when really it's just It's obvious that it's a two-way street, it takes two to tango, it's genocide, it's parasitism, all of which involves at least two parties. And it's, of course, more complicated than that, but when you want to boil it down to try and keep it simple, there's an us and there's a them. It's not just us, and it's not just them. But this binary thinking is not something that just comes up in the context of Jews. It is It does seem to be a mental characteristic, a common mental characteristic among thinkers. It's um, I see it even going way back, uh, Aristotelian logic. The the logic that Aristotle first created, or, or that his name is attached to at least, is based upon the premise that a statement has to be either true or false, and that there's nothing in between. They call that the law of the excluded middle. It allows you to do some nice things in logic. Uh, Modus ponens and modus tollens are based on that law of the excluded middle. But around about the 1920s, Kurt Godel shattered that illusion that everything must either be true or false with his um, incompleteness theorem. And, you know, there's really an intuition, regardless of the formal mathematics and the the big brains that think about these things what the human mind is capable of understanding is limited and that's all that gödel was trying to say. I think that's the, the main conclusion of that is that there's a limit on knowledge and there's a the, the universe is vast the, the potential true and false statements are are vast and there's a lot of in between. there's in fact probably more unknowable and in between. Than we can possibly get to, but um, you know the truth is a whole other conversation to have, a whole nother idea to uh, pull apart. But um, you know this—the the whole idea here behind a false dilemma is the search for truth. The the idea is you want to find what's the best solution to a problem, so you want to potentially, at least white people tend to do this, want to align it with what's the uh what best fits the facts to the truth The straw man argument the straw man fall- fallacy is also somewhat related to this false dilemma the idea behind a straw man fa- fallacy just like with a false dilemma is that the person who's setting it up is trying to describe the situation as if there's one of these two extremes the, the initial choice is seen as maybe being unsavory or or negative And what they do is they try to present the other, Uh, first of all, they try to reduce all alternatives to just one alternative, and it's an extreme, ridiculous alternative. And that's how they hope, by convincing whoever they're arguing with or the peanut gallery around, that the only alternative is something that's crazy and so forth. And so they therefore hope that... uh, it's clear that what they're arguing for no matter how unpalatable it is is the lesser of two evils that's what's behind the straw man argument it's uh, it's an attempt to exaggerate what the other person is arguing in favor of or even and to simplify it down to something ridiculous make it ridiculous and extreme so linder referred a bit to the mechanics of how this is used, how this kind of, this technique of arguing by false dilemma is used. He he wrote, uh, all their terms, their meaning the Jews, amount to, you're either with us or against us, and if you're against us, you're evil and should be suppressed. Again, a valuable insight, this is how the Jews do what they do. They're constantly sniffing out, quote unquote, anti-Semitism, anyone who might be Skeptical or slightly resistant to what they're doing is is all they face usually today in uh, governments and media. And they're not happy even with that and uh, are trying to stomp that out, combating racism and anti-Semitism. That's what most of it amounts to, is just wiping away now even the disorganized, instinctive resistance to their agenda. Uh, Linder followed it up by writing, one problem is PhDs on our side use clown terms like "quote anti-Semitism unquote" and "quote unquote racism," thereby validating them. And this gets to another insight, which is that it hinges on targeting the elite. The the attack or the false dilemma argument arguments period are they occur between intellectuals. They're they're meant to affect intellectuals, people, thinkers, not people who are driven by their emotions or, you know, the vast majority of people who don't really think logically aren't going to be as influenced by a false dilemma as intellectuals are. And Linder makes a valid point here that our intellectuals, our PhDs, the ones who are on our side especially, will use these terms, anti-Semitism and racism, without sneer quotes around them as if they are real things. And uh, even something as simple as sneer quotes is important. Capitalizing or not capitalizing words is important. It seems like such a minor thing. But if you think it's minor, why don't you change it then? If it's so minor, go ahead and change it. And I guarantee you, when you do, when you start writing things with sneer quotes, the enemy's terms with sneer quotes around them, or you start writing Jew in lowercase with lowercase j and white with a capital W, You'll see, people will come out of the woodwork to tell you how stupid that is, how hate-filled you must be to be doing such a thing, something, something so petty. It's so petty that they make a comment about it, and they they respond to it viscerally. That's how petty it is, supposedly. But I think he also, I, the, resp- the response I made to that comment was, that they fear, these PhDs of ours, these intellects, they fear being seen as stupid, crazy, or evil by their enemies. And they fear to even acknowledge that the enemy is an enemy. That's really what's at the root of it. I mean, they, they fear to be seen as stupid, crazy, evil by their peers on their side. But the deeper problem, really, is that they don't make a strong distinction between their peers and their enemies. And I use the word fear there. I think that that's what's at the root of it. The deeper problem, I think, is a failure, whether you want to call it fear or not. The fear is one of the basic emotions, I think, underneath that is probably behind it. But it might just be self-interest. The self-interest in not suffering a diminished attitude from your peers or from your enemies. But at the root of it, really, is a failure to clearly distinguish between us and them. For whatever reason, that if you stand up and you say clearly that there is an us and that there is a them and that if you clearly identify them, that you're clearly identifying yourself too as their enemy and, you know, opening yourself up to be targeted by the enemy. I wrote also to Linder in response to this line of thinking about the PhDs. Thoughts shape language and vice versa when us-them recognition works the proper language follows, reinforces it. What I've tried to express there is that it's not one thing comes first and then the other follows, but that there's a circular dependency there that when you think of things in the right terms, that speaking about those things comes easily. And when you speak about things in the right terms, that the thinking about those things in clear ways comes naturally they reinforce each other this is why jews psychopathologize and demonize whites using us them recognition most of all and i wrote put down the gun whitey do it now you know alluding to how cops use basic human psychology to bark orders at you to do what isn't necessarily in your best interest but to get you to com- to comply that's how they do it They give you a simple command until you do it now. And that's effectively what Jews are doing in this psychological warfare that they wage. And as that earlier quote I read about um, the authoritarian personality put it, the Jews bark at everyone around them, their hosts, to not do the very things that they do themselves, knowing that those things are essential, that they are valuable things for any people that wants to remain a people. But the Jews are unabashedly pro-Jew. They are absolutely fanatically ruthless. And it's something that white people have trouble understanding about the Jews because white people aren't naturally that way. We can be whipped into that by media, by propaganda. We can, and the Jews likewise, we'll decry that, that uh, any populist or demagogue or media propaganda like uh, the National Socialists in Germany used is just evil. But they use those things themselves, and they do those things, they use those things to their own advantage. And that's really how you should understand it is, is that when it's being used to the advantage of the Jews, it's a wonderful, great thing from the Jewish point of view. And it's only when it's being used against them by someone else that it's stupid, crazy, and evil, according to the Jews. It's it's that simple. And that's what I mean by put down the gun. It's as if in the war, the most sensible thing to do once you recognize who your enemy is, is first of all, you don't listen to your enemy and you don't take the advice your enemy gives you. But if your enemy is using a weapon that you of course should use the same weapon if it's possible, if it would work for you. And you try to disarm your enemy. Try to get them in whatever way that you can to drop their weapons. Now, the tactics that the Jews use against whites won't work against the Jews. If whites try to say, oh, you know, we're Jews just like you, and wouldn't it be good for the Jews if you just uh drop these weapons, you know, give up some control over your media, diversify your media a bit, so that it's not just Jews running it and owning it. That's not going to work on the Jews. They're well aware of the tactics that they use and the strength of those tactics in their hands. I think about that uh, article that Jew in Hollywood uh, in the L.A. Times wrote about how Jews run Hollywood. And he doesn't care. Who knows? He just cares that Jews continue to do it. And that's basically their attitude about not just Hollywood and media, but banking, finance, political control, all of it. Anything that they do successfully. Israel, ethno-nationalism, building walls. That's, you know, they build walls, that's fine. You try to build a wall around your country, you're a rotten, evil, stupid, crazy person. So these words like racist and anti-Semite, they need to be understood as terms of abuse, as attempts to intimidate you into not doing whatever it is that you're doing. They're buzz terms, and there's many other buzz terms. These are things, words that are packed with a pejorative payload. They're like explosives in the brain, I mean, in the uh, context of a psychological war. And they're loaded, they're, they're packed by repetition. They're given power and energy by this repetition, by supposed authorities, by experts, by the experts and authorities in academia and media, the professors, the pundits, And the politicians who repeat these terms over and over, who agree with the Jews about what they mean and stand behind them and then pronounce to the masses that this is what these, these terms are bad and that you should see them as bad. That's where their power comes from. And their power is undone that easily by recognizing that these supposed authorities and experts are your enemies. It's that simple. You, once you recognize that these people who say that X or Y or Z is bad and evil and stupid and crazy. And once you recognize that they're enemies, it loses its power. That psychological warfare not only becomes ineffective, but you recognize it as an attack, and it actually inspires a response. It, respire, it, it inspires a healthy, instinctive response to fight back. The Linder said... Uh, One one other thing at the time, he said, it's sickly funny that the only verbal recognition of Jew commies mass murder of a 100 million last century is political correctness. He's referring to the fact that probably the only term that seems to be used against the Jews in a a sort of cloaked way as a term that reflects some sort of a pushback or criticism of the Jewish agenda and Jewish power, is this term political correctness, which as Linder, I'm sure, is familiar, Joe Sabrun said the, the more proper term is Semitic correctness, not political correctness, because the whole idea of what is or isn't correct is dictated by the Jews. It's laid down, the law is laid down by the Jews, what is or isn't politically correct. And the term political correctness is itself a politically correct euphemism for the fact that it comes from the Jews, the fact that it should be called Semitic correctness to more properly reflect the origin of it and who's driving it, who's in the driver's seat. As Sabrun also said at one point about anti-Semitism, he said, an anti-Semite used to be someone who hates the Jews. Now it's someone the Jews hate. That's not really something that has changed. It's both. It's... The first, the idea that an anti-Semite is someone who hates the Jews, is the white interpretation, the white misinterpretation of that phrase. It's always, to the Jews, represented someone that they hate their enemy. That's how they identify an enemy. They call them an anti-Semite. And it's not... It's, it's partly to try and intimidate and silence that person, but it's also partly to call the attention of other Jews. Hey, hey, we got one here. Here's an enemy. Here's a target. Destroy this one. And that's how it's used. And before the 1870s, when anti-Semitism was first popularized as a, as a term, Jews used the term Amalek for their, it's their ancient enemy. And so uh, the Amalek were, were an ancient enemy that they exterminated long ago. And so they would refer to anyone who was opposed to them as Amalek, not only clearly identifying them as as an enemy, but implicitly that that enemy needs to be destroyed, exterminated. That's what Amalek means. And after the 1930s, of course, and especially after the 1940s, the word that they use is Nazi, and it has the same connotation that Amalek does. It's someone who's anti-Jewish, and deserves to be destroyed, exterminated, put to death. Linder made one more very good insight. He said, It's not hatred when Jews attack whites. It's humor, edgy, daring, boundary-breaking. It's hatred, rather, when whites criticize Jews. niece being ironic there, uh, presenting it in a sarcastic way, somewhat a backward way. This is an insight that I had had half of this. <laughs> I admit, I, I, I actually, I had two, both halves of this, but I had never connected them in the way that he, he did here. And so this is noteworthy, I think. First of all, we see, even as recently as with the uh, Charlie Hebdo thing in France, that this is what hebes do, the free speech versus hate speech, with Jews defining what hate means. But even right there is the other half of it, uh, that I didn't uh, uh, realize and I didn't connect it to, which is Jews also define the opposite, which is the stuff that is free, which is humor and satire, like Char- Charlie Hebdo. So when Charlie Hebdo wants to say something really nasty about French nationalists, about uh, Christianity, about Muslims, that's okay, that's free speech, according to the Jews. But if you take something that is humorous or satire concerning Jews, that's exactly what Jews call hate and want to outlaw, want outlawed and have succeeded in having outlawed in many countries, especially in Europe, especially in France. There is a true dilemma here, a division between two distinct choices. And even this one, and in fact, this one, most of all, the Jews present as a false dilemma. They try to portray the one side of it as stupid, crazy, or evil, unthinkable. And this is the, the this dilemma is the fact that Jews want whites to believe that Jews are white, that we're all one. And that anyone who says otherwise is exactly stupid, crazy, evil, racist, anti Semite, a hater. And yet the reality is if you just listen to the Jews talking amongst themselves, and sometimes even when they're lecturing Europeans or anyone in the world about how they should see things, it's clear that the Jews see themselves as distinct, as separate from every other people, but especially separate from whites, that Jews see whites as the other. They'll psychopathologize this whole idea of us and them, that there is an other, that we should be welcoming of the other, even if we do see another. That's what they try to promote. But again, this is just them trying to disarm their enemies, disarm their hosts, so that for their benefit, because the reality is, is that they very strongly see a distinction between themselves and everyone else. They very strongly see everyone else as the other. And whites especially are the other, and not just any old other, but their bugbear, their eternal mortal enemy. That is the Jewish narrative, if you listen to it. Not just the Holocaust narrative, but their whole narrative of their history amongst Europeans is that they've been victimized and oppressed, kicked out of one country after another for no reason whatsoever. Jews don't identify as white, except to excuse their crimes, so that Jews don't get blamed for it, whites do. They also use it to better infiltrate white institutions, white organizations. And they do want to assimilate to their host to a certain limited extent. And they infiltrate with the purpose of manipulating and better manipulating. And in this case of claiming that they're white, they are trying to claim moral authority, to say something negative about whites. How many times does it appear in the Jews' media, an article Somebody saying something about white privilege or something negative about white racism, white supremacy, white nationalists. And it turns out that the author or the proponent of the argument is a Jew. And oftentimes it's a Jew who said things in favor of Jews, things that would be considered, quote unquote, racist if Jews actually were white. And so this is the dilemma. You know, are Jews white or are they not? And the the Jews want you to believe that the Jews are white because it serves their interests and until it doesn't, and then they, they don't want to be seen as white. The reality is is that they're not white. They don't identify positively as white. The tragedy is that they're mistaken by many whites as white. <laughs> To the heritage that once was yours and mine. come and streets.